What is up, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Drop-In. If you watched the last episode, Bill Bellotti knocked it out of the freaking park, man. Yeah, I did. mean, come on. Like, he, he dug deep and gave some amazing nuggets of wisdom. I talk about the Goosebumps. Just talking about that show, Pete. Are the goosebumps there? They're there. I see them. Yeah, it, it happens. And and over the next couple, three, four months, every single show is going to dabble on sobriety. We're going to have people in here from, I mean, all over the country. I People have been reaching out to me to come on the show. My ge The gentleman sitting right next to me, Pete, um, he was early on. He, he was one of the very first to say, I want to come on. And his story was so unique and different then what you're expecting, I was like, hell yeah, come on the show. Because addiction and recovery, it's 100% of the time, it is not just about the addict or the one in recovery. The influence on your family, on the siblings, on your significant other cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated because it is to, to you know, get to that point it often takes a group, you know, your peer pressure or however you end up getting into addiction. Sometimes it's complete isolation, as we've seen in the last three years. I looked at a stat recently, and last in the last 12-month period, we have 110,000 people have died from overdoses. 110,000, and nobody's talking about it. It should be freaking headlines, man. It should be headlines, because the isolation. I believe that connection... Is, is, is an important part on the road to recovery. When we isolate, when we, when we get away from people, it, it is so detrimental to our health, not only mentally, physically, spiritually, and that's what we've had to deal with over the last three years. So from now until probably January, and depending on when you're uh, watching this, because it could be 10 years down the road, that's like the next four four months or so, five months or so, we will have nothing but shows about recovery. Next episode coming up, we got a whole crew. I think they're bringing their whole meeting up from Ohio to come on the show. Jeff Schill, Jared Cook, Dustin, uh, who knows, whoever else. I mean, we, we might have to put up a grandstand here at the Better Rate Mortgage Studios at the Woodward Sports Complex. We might have to say, can I use the big studio? Because I got like a, a busload coming in. Continue to tune in to these episodes of The Drop-In. Like, share, get them out there. Send the link to somebody you know that maybe, just maybe, there's something within one of our shows that's going to help them get out of the rut that they're in. Help them realize there is hope. There is always hope. And you are going to listen and see living proof of that over the next four months coming out of the drop-in. But I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. You know, I do this show for you. I reach out to these amazing guests for you. And so I want to thank you guys. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. If you're listening on Apple or wherever you're listening, just let's make positivity go viral, man. We got to look out for each other. We have to look out for each other and, and also look out for each other's well-being. So if you hear something, you see something, get you fired up, you think it's going to fire up somebody else, share it, man. Don't think about it. Don't go, hey, I think John would like this. Freaking copy the link, send it to him, and let's continue to inspire the world because that's my goal here on The Drop-In, to inspire the world one show at a time. So thank you again for tuning in. Pete, I have to say, man, you were one of the first to get back to me, and when I read your bio, I was like, like, wow, wow, what a road you have traveled. But let's talk about your road traveling in here today. You almost got sidetracked, eh? <laughs> I did. I totally lost track of time. And uh, while I thought it was about 3.30 in the afternoon, it was actually 5 when I spoke to you on the phone and, and caught me completely off guard. And I luckily made it on time, thanks to your oh, little you call. Oh, you were perfect. You, you perfect. know, if something was working in the in the universe today to make, hey, you know, I think I'm going to bust Pete off a call. I must Something must have tickled you or something. Because you called me at the perfect time to, to kickstart me and get me here. And I, before I say anything else, I'd like to thank you for having me on. It's, it's an honor to be here. And I've watched a bunch of your shows. Um, I actually watched a few before we even spoke about this. But since I knew I was coming on, I went and watched a handful of them. And they're great. Everything you do is great. And like you said, it's all about the positivity. 
and I think you can't get enough of that. So, well, a, a staggering statistic on positivity, a staggering statistic. And it's a study, science did it. I'll try to find the link and put it under this show that um, the majority of Americans spend 80% of their day looking for something to be offended by. And so, you know, I'm sure somebody can find something that's going to be offensive in the next hour while we're oh, sitting here. It's likely. But if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find, you yeah, know? Exactly. If you're looking for it, you're sure to find it. But let's hope we give them everything positive today. We're going to, sh we're going to shoot for that one. And we'll do what we can. Uh, so I'm going over the outline. The outlines I send out are, are loose. The shows end up taking on a life of their own. But uh, I still refer back to them, as you guys know. Um, you know, why, why, uh, when I said I, I'm looking for, you know, some stories of sobriety, some, you know, inspiration, when that post went out, you got back to me quickly. What, what was it that made you go, I want to, I want to talk about this? Well, um, there's a period in my life that I'm sure we'll talk about, but, um, my life was out of control. It had spiraled out of control. I was surrounded by chaos and everything that, um, that I tried to do to stop that, to get it back on the road, failed miserably. And thankfully, there were people around that were willing to give me these little doses of hope and little doses of experience and little doses of positivity that um, carried me through those really difficult times. At the very beginning, there would be little bits that I would pick up or someone would send me a meme or a, or a podcast or something like that. So I believe that... Um, opportunities are presented to me as they're supposed to be. And if I get an opportunity given to me, I was obviously scrolling and saw that post exactly when I did, because I believe that I was supposed to. So when, now that I'm a little deeper in my recovery and my life isn't so chaotic, um, if I see an opportunity or I feel moved to give back in any way, even if it's share two minutes of my experience or story, and maybe it helps one person make an hour of their day better, then it's worth it to me. And I know you have an audience and this goes out and there are, are a lot of people who watch this, um, I for one, and if I can help anybody in any way, it's worth scrambling to get down here on time after losing track of time. Um, and you know, I don't care who it is, like I said, I'm willing to share and hopefully it helps somebody. And if nothing else, I know that sitting here having a positive conversation with you is going to be helpful to me. That's I'm what probably going to go home and feel better. That's so. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it happens. It happens. Uh, and every, every time I've done this show, this is, I think, 308, 309. Mm -hmm. Every time uh, I'm in the studio, I walk out of here, like, just energized. And, and most often, the guests walk out, like, lighter on their feet. And there's, they're like, we want to keep carrying it more. Like, let's keep doing, let's do another show. Can we do another show? Like, let's do this. <laughs> and, and you're exactly right. Uh, the common consciousness of, of us sitting here uh, radiates through that freaking camera. Oh, I yeah. guarantee it does. I wish uh, one day I'll get Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza, to come in here and try to measure this, measure, like, the consciousness and all that kind of stuff. Because I truly believe the vibration and, and the commonality of thought, in, it, it influences everything in the world. And, um, and I'm stoked to have you in here, man. Thanks I'm again, really man. stoked to have you on. Stoked to be uh, here. You know, uh, upbringing, environment, all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, we're a sponge up until about the age of seven. And then we start between six and eight. Most scientists say seven, and then we start forming our own opinions after that age. How was your upbringing? How were you in school? Um, how was that for you? My upbringing, um, it wasn't, I mean, I like to say, I'll start off by saying it isn't but anybody's fault, but I had a lot of dysfunctional and a lot of, uh, I guess I'll, I'll probably use the word chaos a lot today because that's exactly what it was. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. Um, my parents... I was raised by two parents who grew up in a dysfunctional, dysfunctional situations. I won't get into their stories, but they were dysfunctional and dealt with a lot of childhood trauma themselves. So as I've learned in my recovery, that childhood trauma doesn't go away if it doesn't get worked on. And back in the early 60s or late 50s, for instance, there wasn't a lot of talk about it. That was the day where you just kind of swept it under the rug and pretended everything was fine. 
Well, I was raised by two people that both experienced a lot of trauma as a child. And as a result, I'm sure they didn't necessarily know how to navigate a marriage or a family very healthy. And they were trying to figure out their best way to do it um, while we're trying to raise me and a younger sister. My parents divorced at a young age when I was about eight years old, a little bit before eight years old. It wasn't a very, um, it wasn't warm and, and fuzzy. It was very, I remember my memories being very, um, very tense and, and a lot of yelling and arguing. It wasn't violent, but the energy, like you speak of the energy, was severely negative and, and it impacted me huge. And then my parents split. Um, my mom was dealing with some things and, and um, my parents um, split um, and, my, and I was, um, my sister and I my, were moved with, excuse me, moved in with my father my father was given full custody. Um, so during that split, um, it was very traumatic for me. Yeah. Seven and a half years old, as you can imagine. Trying to make heads or tails out of a situation, especially that age. Like I said, that's about the time you start forming your own opinions mm -hmm. and your views of the world. So oh, yeah. it's got to be very difficult. Definitely. And um, my dad was ill. He, um, As a child, he contracted polio and scarlet fever simultaneously. <laughs> Um, for a good portion of his teen years, he spent some time in an iron lung. He had to relearn how to walk. So in his formative years of his teens, he was trying to stay alive and learn how to walk again. Um, that's a huge trauma in itself, not to mention other things he experienced. Um, and my mom went through her own stuff as well. Um, like I said, when my parents split, I had custody of my father. I was very close to my father. Um, couldn't get around well, walked with a real heavy limp, was not the healthiest. He had heart issues as a result of his illness. Um, but what I learned for him, from him was um, perseverance and humility. The man could hardly, I mean, he could hardly walk around. He had a heavy, heavy limp. He walked, he walked with a limp, but he got out there and he played ball with me. And I saw him fall a million times and he'd pop right back up and say, come on, let's try this harder. You got to do that a little bit better. And he was very encouraging to me. And he was my, at that point, uh, I had a lot of anger towards my mom. As you can imagine, she left the home. Uh, and my dad and I were the closest. And, and then, they're like Superman at that at that age. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I viewed my dad the same way. It's like, that's indestructible. He knows it all. I can follow his lead. He'll never do me wrong. Yeah. That's the mentality. Yeah, and he was a great guy. He coached me in football and baseball. He helped me be a fantastic athlete. And he showed me humility. Like, he showed me that. There's always going to be someone faster, stronger, better. Um, but if you want it, you can do it. You just got to work hard and earn it. And that's the mentality he gave me. Unfortunately, three years after that divorce, my dad's illness caught up with him and he passed away. So you were 11, 10, 11 years old? I was old, a somewhere? month before my, about a month and a half before my 12th birthday. Okay. Um, and that was a horribly traumatic experience for me, as you can imagine. It was... The story about it, it was started out as a joyous day. My, my aunt's dog was supposed to have puppies and we were supposed to get one of these puppies. And it was seven in the morning and the phone rang. And at that point, there wasn't cell phones. There wasn't cordless phones. The phone was on a cord in the kitchen. So I got out of bed. I heard the phone ring and I ran to the kitchen to get the phone. It was my aunt, you know, get over here. The puppies are born. You get over here and pick out your puppy. And I'm like, yes, I hung up the phone and I sprinted into my dad's room and I found him in his bed. And my whole world changed right there. Yeah. I think and I think world. anybody's would, especially again, mm -hmm. we'll go with the, the where you were in your life at that age, the the security and and, and how we view mm -hmm. our, our fathers at that time. Um, I can't even imagine the devastation. Right. And um, what was tough for me again? Um, so I went from that, and I had been separated from my mother, and kind of angry at my mother, honest, honestly. Obviously, we were going to live with my mom. So my mom, my sister, and I moved in with my grandparents, my mother's parents. Um, and it isn't anybody's fault, but what happened was everybody just kind of act like nothing happened. Every, okay. No therapy, no, man, you must really be in some pain, Pete. Right, right. Nothing. You know, that, again, the mentality of if we don't talk about it, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Well, inside, I was a kid that was completely shattered. So I went from being a very outgoing, athletic, you know, um, very
very just outgoing kid to very withdrawn and shy because I had all this pain inside that I didn't know what to do with. And everybody, all the adults around me and everybody around me is acting like everything's fine. And we just don't talk about it. Right. But I'm a mess. Right. And so what happened is in my, uh, shortly after that, I continued to play football and I was on a mission to play football and I was going to succeed and go to school to play football from my, you know, and I was going to do that and for my, in the memory of my father and I was motivated. And shortly after that, uh, I went out and I injured my neck severely. And that was the end of my football playing. And the doctors uh, said I'd be taking a huge risk by continuing to play. And, you know, I remember my mother sitting in there with the coach and saying, I need a son more than he needs a football player. And I couldn't argue that. Mm -hmm. um, and as you can imagine there, I was motivated to do that for my father. Right, right, right. So now so that's I, taken away. I lost that. And so we're probably at about a point where you discover music. Yeah, getting music. close to that creative point because you said like, you know, uh, you lose your dad around twelve. In between, sometime in twelve, fourteen or so, you have an injury. Fifteen, you know, when kids are big enough to hurt you, mm -hmm. and about fifteen, sixteen is when you you discover music. I did. Um, and my dad, growing up, um, I always say this too. When I lived with my father, and even when my parents were married, uh, the stereo was always on. We were spinning records. If there wasn't a Tiger game or a Lions game on, the radio was on. Was Any Neil Sadaka or Freddie, Fe Freddie Fender. <laughs> like, that's what I grew up with, Neil Sadaka and Freddie Fender. <laughs> My dad was into a lot of the uh, Motown and the oh, soul yeah. and the 60s soul and a lot of the 70s rock. And I grew up listening to all that stuff. And um, and so music was in me. I was already had a huge love of music. But when I couldn't play sports, I became really withdrawn and depressed. And... Um, Around that time, shortly thereafter, um, I was hanging with some friends of mine who happened to be in a band. And they had an entire band, but they didn't have a singer. And I'd go over there and I'd sit in and watch them play and, you know, listen to the songs. And they were doing covers, you know, Black Sabbath and Kiss and Alice Cooper and things like that. Hopefully at the time. some Barry White. You hear this guy's <laughs> voice? You hear his voice. You can, now you're going to hear, yeah, Barry White. Barry White, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, hey, one day I decided, um, I was really shy and withdrawn. I was afraid to even talk in front of many people, but I decided, hey, I'll try and sing these songs. I know how to sing, you know, Alice Cooper's I'm 18 and, um, you know, I can sing War Pigs and things like that. So I tried it and what I found was it was a total escape for me. Um, you know, at first I was still really shy. So if I had to sing in front of people, even the, my bandmates, I remember wearing sunglasses because I felt, you know, I was in behind my armor with sunglasses on at that point. And then that band um, that grew on me, it was, an, it was like going to therapy every time I was in that room with my friends and the music was loud and I was screaming into the microphone. It was amazing. Um, so that became my escape, you know, um, in high school, like everybody, I mean, I guess I can't say everybody, but the majority of teenagers, you know, we experiment with alcohol, we experiment with drugs, we get mischievous and all that other stuff. My, and I did my share of that. Um, my safe spot was, was music and it still is today. Um, that's my, it's been therapeutic for me since then. And, um, and it continues to be, I mean, um, right after high school or that band started playing covers turned into an all original, um, that band broke up and a guy I went to high school with said, Hey, I'm forming a punk band and I need a guitar player. You know, you want to play guitar? And I'm like, well, I got a guitar and I had a little practice amp and a guitar. And, um, so we wrote some songs and I, the, we wrote three songs and did a beastie boys cover off of Pollywog stew when they were doing the fast punk rock stuff. And, uh, we played a talent show at Clarkston High School, like two weeks after our first practice. And I was hooked there too. Yeah. Um, I could play fast, I could play one chord, and I could play a song with two changes. And it was noisy and it was fast and it was aggressive and it felt amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. And um, that band went on to do quite a bit. And I've continued to be in bands throughout the years, my entire life. Um, it's been very therapeutic for me. I've been in various bands over the years. We've had a lot of releases and played throughout um, all the Detroit venues and out of town and whatnot over the years. Um, outside of the high totals, which we're going to talk about the high totals, outside of the high totals, which do you have another that you would consider one of your favorite bands that you played in? 
I was in a band in the late 80s. The band I talked to talked about um, starting up when I first started playing guitar and we played the um, talent show at Clarkson High School. That was a band called Disgust back in the late 80s, early 90s. And we played a lot of big shows. We were lucky enough that Roosevelt at Blondie's would give us all these opening gigs. And we played at St. Andrews. Um, unfortunately, you know, we got a bad rap and that band kind of fizzled out. And, um, but that was probably my favorite and most influential band. We accomplished a lot with that band. And, and, um, I was in that band with like some of my most closest friends and they're still my brothers today. Um, unfortunately we lost one of them about a year ago. Um, my brother mole passed away unexpectedly, but, um, out of that band, I've formed, um, some of my closest friends who still remain that today. Um, and like you said, I'm in a band today called um, High Totals, and um, we play out. We've been together a few years. We play out regionally, I guess. Um, you can find us on all the social medias and whatnot. We're getting ready to release a new record. Um, so for our for our viewers, listeners, um, if the High Totals were going to open for somebody that is like huge, like or somebody that maybe they would know, who would it be? Who would you oh, guys man. open for? Oh wow! Um, like Guns and Roses, Black Flag. You we, know, we'd or... fit way better with Black Flag okay. than Guns and Roses. Yeah, we we wouldn't do well. So cool punk Roses. stuff. Yeah, kind of punky, kind of. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of. Um, we got a lot of different influences. When this band started, it was a lot more punky, but now it's getting a lot more. Uh, I don't know, Sabbathy. Okay. Like if we took Black Flag and mixed it with a bunch of Sabbath. Not a bad combination. Somewhere in between. I don't know. It's a difficult question for me to answer. Um, I suggest that people just, I think it'd be cool if people listen to it and and try to tell me what they think we said. All right, that's your guys' job. When we put the link underneath the show, comment about the show, obviously, but also comment about high totals. Like, let us know what you think. Let Pete know what you think, because they have a really cool, prior to coming on the air, we were talking about what's upcoming for high totals, and it's really freaking cool what they're going to do with with some singles, and at the end, it's going to make a whole album, and you're going to have to collect them all to get the cool <laughs> box, possibly. I was spitballing a little bit, and my brain goes like, to the moon. Like, that's where I go. Like, straight to there. So, make sure to keep an eye out for that. Um, so, still playing music, obviously. Great creative outlet for me. Skateboarding, music, all that was, like, a, a huge part of being able to deal with some some of the downtimes that life, oh, yeah. life gives us. And at 25, you end up getting married. I, I don't think that's a bad age to get married. I think that, you know... You try to have a fairly good view of what's going on. You know, you, you've seen some things. You've done mm-hmm. some things. You, you know, spent time with other significant others, and you, and you feel like you, you make a good choice at this point. At 25, you get married. And, I mean, perfect marriage? Was it the wonderful marriage that every, you know, house, pick a fence, all that kind of good stuff? Far from it. <laughs> Far from the perfect marriage. Um, I ended up... Not not a surprise at all. Ended up being attractive and um, connecting with a girl who ha- had a lot of uh, childhood trauma coming up and dysfunction in her family, just like me. Um, it's no surprise that we ended up together. Um, we had a very tumultuous relationship right from the beginning. Um, but we kept in contact and we kept seeing each other, even though we really didn't get along well. We were two kids trying to figure out how to navigate our way in this world without any kind of tools. I mean, neither one of us, unfortunately, like I said before, it isn't anybody's fault, but we weren't given uh, an appropriate set of tools to navigate the world as an adult. Um, We connected and hooked up and we were trying to figure that out. And the next thing you know, she ended up pregnant. With? With? With twins. Yeah, with (laughs) two. Twin girls. Not one, two twin girls. So we, both coming from a broken home, we vowed, our children are not going to come from a broken home. We're going to give them a home where they've got both parents in the home. We're going to give them the best upbringing we can. And at the point, we were doing the best we could. That's what we thought was the best for our kids. And and we dove head into being parents. I mean, we were the best parents we could be, again, with ill-equipped set of tools to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tried. Um, our marriage was far from perfect. 
but we tried to be perfect parents, whatever that meant. And in our parenting, we did the best we could, and we were very focused on that. Um, as the kids started to grow a little bit, um, the signs were there early on. Um, my ex-wife started um, showing signs of alcoholism and addiction. And um, while we met and we were both drinking a lot, and, you know, when we met, we, were, we met actually at a discuss show, a house party. And she came in and I was drinking and she walked in the door and she was drinking and we hit it right off and we drank and that's what we do. We get together and we drink. When we had children, we tried to be responsible and whatnot, but the drinking and the drugs kind of started overtaking and it started causing um, problems like that happen, like that does in your, when it's in your household. Um, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction drags a wake of chaos right behind it. And like you said, the, the addiction or the, the alcoholism might be centered right here on this one person, but the ripple effect just goes out and out and out and out and it, and it carries out through so many different layers. And, um, and while, um, her addiction grew, um, I couldn't figure out, you know, our problems grew and I couldn't figure out, you know, if you could just have a beer or two and just stop, like I can, all of our problems would be fine, but you got to go and drink yourself into a blackout and everything, you know, and then, and then all this chaos ensues mm -hmm. and I don't get it. Why can't you just not drink 18 beers? I didn't get it at the time. The more I tried to control and stop her from drinking, the more chaotic and more, you know, disheveled our, our household and our marriage got. Now, did she ever address that she knew she had a problem? Like, for me, I can only talk about my experience. I knew years, a couple years before I got sober, I knew I had a problem, but yet I would still go back out. You know, I would still, at least I was acknowledging I had a problem, which so many of us uh, in recovery now, that was the biggest hurdle. We would never acknowledge, you know, yeah. that we had a problem. Was she at least aware that it was, it was uh, progressing and becoming a bigger problem? Well, I believe that she was fully aware, but she wasn't willing to admit it um, because the more I went to talk about it, you know, how it happens when those arguments, you kind of do the dance. And you go, if you could just do this, and then she would throw stuff back at me. Well, if you wouldn't do this, I wouldn't want to drink, and this and this and that. And, you know. Um, Trying to justify behavior, basically, exactly. is what we do. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't realize it at the time. I realize now that um, during that period, as her disease progressed, um, I learned later that I had a thinking disease. I'm a codependent. I'm like a raging, fine-tuned <laughs> <laughs> like outstanding codependent. So like her disease and my disease, my thinking disease were the perfect meld of this perfect storm. So we did this dance and as she got more out of control, I got more out of control in trying to control, mm -hmm. trying to get her to stop, trying to keep track of her drinks, trying to keep track of her pills, trying to keep track of the mileage on the car to where you know, she was intoxicated and blown out all the time. So she at least had an excuse for this irrational behavior. Right. I'd be sober and completely off the rails trying to control her life and every aspect of it. Um, and I learned later that that's called codependency. And, and I learned, I can sit here and say that I was just as sick or even sicker as she was in my disease. I, I thought for some reason that I could control her. And then I could stop her. And I was obsessed with that to the point to where um, it, it impacted the, the way I was as, as an employee at work. It impacted the way I was as a father, as a friend, as a bandmate. It impacted and consumed every aspect of my life. Just like her alcohol or pills consumed and impacted every aspect of her life, my codependency did the same exact thing. Right, right. And... Um you know, you eventually ended up reaching out to get help. Um, did you do that during the marriage or after the marriage? When you were, um, and I think you said you were married 12 years. 13 years. 13 years. Um, were you seeking help for your codependency at that time or did that come after? 
right at the end, towards the end of the relationship, um, we had, we were still married, but we had separated and I had started seeing a therapist, um, which was very helpful. And she introduced me to the whole idea of codependency. She was very, uh, impactful in my life and I'm forever grateful for her. Um, she's now retired and I'm depressed because I wish I could, you know, preserve her and keep her in practice for yeah. the rest of my life because yeah. I found this amazing therapist and she recommended, um, a 12 step recovery, uh, program for people who are impacted by alcohol, someone else's drinking or drug use. Um, I subscribed to everything she said. She was like a savior to me at that point. She gave me a light in the darkness at that point where I didn't have anywhere else to turn. And I often say that when I've done open talks or even sh share um, with other people in that program that, um, that I had nowhere else to turn at that point. Everything I had tried, I exhausted all options and nothing changed. It in fact made it worse. Um, she suggested that program and at that point I had nothing else to lose. And you know, you make an incredible point, an incredible point that when you get to the point where you have exhausted everything you know, what do you do then? Do you recoil and just say, I guess this is the way I'm supposed to live? I'm going to say absolutely not. There's hope and there's somebody out there like Pete, like myself, who's experienced these kinds of things. And if you feel like you've exhausted it all and nothing has changed in your life, reach out to one of us or the link below this show. Because there is always another step you can take. And, and you, you illustrated it so perfectly. And therapy, uh, the stigma behind therapy is, is I think, loosening. That th if, you, if you say, I go see a therapist, I immediately see that as a sign of strength. Because Definitely. you're trying to make yourself better. And as soon as you said it, I'm like, that's huge at that time. Mm -hmm. That's a huge step of a, a very mature person to do. But I see that as a sign of strength when you have the confidence or, or actually lack of confidence. Say, I need help. I don't know what to do. Help me. Tell me what to do. Honestly, in that point, um, my children were life preservers for me. Um, they weren't in the picture. Or my wife wasn't in the picture. Um I had lost my, I had a mom who left and lost my dad at 12. Um, my greatest fear was abandoning my children. So when, when their mom was out of the picture, it was like all or nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I needed to find, but I needed to find something because I needed to take care of these kids. Right on. And um, I would have given everything I had to make sure that they were okay. Um, and still to this day, they're adults and I'd still do the same thing. Of course. But, um, but that was very important to me. And I think... There were times, certainly, during that where I felt like giving up. I wanted to bail. I wanted to just quit and bail, honestly. But then in that same thought would be my kids. Right. I can't do that to them. I got to do this. I got to pull myself up. I got to get to work. I got to do this. I got to go to therapy. I got to find a way. And I found a way, and I walked into that meeting I remember my first one, I showed up early. I had no idea where I was going. I walked into my first one and um, I sat down at a table and this side of me was a woman with like 32 years in the program. This side was a woman at 35 years in the program and I was right where I needed to be. I remember sitting at that table and it was a table full of people and they're sharing their stories pretty similar to mine, equal chaos, you know, equal amount of chaos in their homes. Um, they're smiling and they're laughing and they're joking and they're talking about going out to lunch with one another after the meeting. And I'm like, holy shit, how can you be happy and laughing right. when your home is a complete disaster? Little ways into the program, I realized that. Yeah. They had lost the, um, the compulsion to their addict, to their alcoholic. Doesn't mean that addict or alcoholic is a bad person. It doesn't mean that you don't love them or care about them or want what's best for them. But at some point you realize there's nothing you can do to help them if they aren't willing to help themselves. Amen. So you've got to take care of yourself. And when I was able to get that, it made me a better father. Like I said, being consumed with all the negatives back here 
was a detriment to all those things that I was outside of that marriage. Mm -hmm. But when I started absorbing this program, it was all like a fertilizer to all those things. I was a better employee. I was a better father. I was a better friend. I was a better bandmate. And um, it made a world of difference. It was the life preserver I need. It was a life changer. Yeah. Lifesaver. It was a... it was the light in the darkness. I could go with these analogies all day, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It turned everything completely around. And when I started, um, I had a few months in, and I found out that there was a teen program, 12-step teen program, the same one I was attending, but it catered to children who were affected by alcoholism or addiction. I mentioned it to my kids. Hey, guys, I heard, learned on Tuesday night there's this meeting over here. And about how old were they at this time? They were 11 years old. Okay. Um, and I mentioned it to them. said, I know where it is. There's, it's a meeting for kids. It's like the one I'm going to, but it's for kids. If you ever want to go, let me know. And at the advice of my therapist, I said, you ever want to go, let me know. I let it lay. Rad approach. That's a rad approach. Two days later, they called me at work and said, Dad, is that meeting still going on tonight? Can we go? I'm like, yes. They never stopped. Since they're 11 years old, they're 28 today. They're almost 29. They've got 17 years of recovery at 29 years old. Almost 18 years of recovery at 29 years old. And I can't express the gratitude that I have for what that program has given them. Yeah. Not just me, but for them. Because they didn't have to go through the, the out-of-control teen years, 20s, without having the tools to navigate it. Right, right. They were given those tools at 11. They were introduced to those tools at 11 years old. And the biggest gift I've ever been given was that gift to them. Man, so, you know, and I'm glad you stated it the way you did. like that. Because that, so much, again, I, I talk about stigma often. And there's, there's like this negative stigma of a 12-step program. Like, they, almost people joke about it, you know. But when it has the impact on somebody's life that it has had on yours, on mine, on so many others, um, uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing step-by-step step to get yourself back. And you just mm-hmm. have to be willing to give it a chance. When you exhaust every different avenue you know, in, in, in the, I did the same thing in my limited, you know, for me, it was like, oh, I'll just drink a half pint tonight <laughs> or I'm switching to beer. I'll be okay with beer. Nothing I did worked. I eventually mm-hmm. was back in the same spot until I went to a meeting until I found for me, like-minded individuals who could explain and help me along that pathway, like your therapist did, like your friends that you ended up making in the organization, uh, in 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 the group, and then for your for your kids, that's that's like huge. That's yeah, huge. It's amazing. And you know what's um, the the program they were in the the teen program. Um, I saw what it did to them. It changed their lives. As you can imagine, my kids going through that, they were very shy and withdrawn and and very quiet, just like I was at that age. This program gave them a sense of self. It yeah. gave them, um, it gave them uh, um, confidence. It gave them tools to feel okay. Like, you know, um, when I was in my when I was in my marriage um, with my first wife, I felt like our house was the only one in the neighborhood that was going through that kind of madness. That if these people only knew what was going on inside our house, they'd really be blown away. But now that I'm in recovery, I realize that that's more often the case than right. not. Just about every house up and down the street has some sort of dysfunction going on. Just about everybody you see walking on the street is dealing with some kind of trauma. And only now, recently, are we starting to talk about it openly in society. And that's the only way that I've learned that we can fix it. Mm-hmm. It's by addressing it and looking at it and going over it and working through it. For so long, everyone just jams stuff down the pipe. and You don't talk about it. Everything's fine. Well, in my own personal experience, I did plenty of that growing up as well. But I've learned in my life that jamming it down the pipe and acting like everything's fine has done nothing but create huge problems for me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm a guy who likes to get honest and be real. And I earn a lot of respect doing that. A lot of times I say things that people don't want to hear. But I know if you had something, I'd rather have you be straight up, even if it was difficult for you to say and difficult for me to hear. I'm going to respect you 10 times more than if you're trying to, you know, bullshit me or whatever. Well, you keep pushing stuff back. Eventually, there's it's, it's like a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually... Um, I mean, it, it's going to blow, and you, you make some wonderful points as far as honesty. I'll add in their personal accountability, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's, uh, I think in, on a grand scale, we are, we are losing some of that in society today with the, um, the victimhood oh, of yeah. people, how people are comfortable to blame somebody else, when if we really look in the mirror, um, very often we could have made decisions along the way that could have altered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have very well said, I'm this way because I had a crappy childhood and, and this and, and this and be a very angry man. And oh, I would yeah. hate to see you angry. Hate to see you angry. I'm sure our viewers would hate <laughs> to see you angry. But instead, you took the initiative to say, you know what, I'm going to get some help. I'm mm-hmm. going to get some help, and I want a better life for my children. And I commend you for that because that's, that's a you. huge step that a lot of people aren't willing to take. Thank you. And, and, and in my recovery, I learned, you know, in growing up, and you can probably relate, growing up and, and, and being around all that, what I experienced, what it installed with me was very low self-esteem, very low self-opinion. Um, I didn't think highly of myself. I didn't think I deserved the happiness that I saw everyone else have. I thought that, well, this is my my path, this is what I got to settle for. But in my recovery, I learned that, um, you know, we can stay there and settle if we'd like, Mm -hmm. but all of us are deserving of happiness and all of us are deserving of respect and all of us um, are deserving of everything that makes our life beautiful and wonderful and peaceful, whatever that is for us. I can't tell you what's right for you. I'm working on trying to figure out what's right for me, but whatever that is, you're deserving of it. And you can achieve it. You can settle and sit back here and, and, you know, wallow in whatever and complain. Or you can go out and get it. But once I was able to look at myself in the mirror and say, I deserve happiness. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve, I don't have to settle for anything less than exactly what I want. Um, I can set boundaries with people. You know, that behavior might be okay with you. And I'm not trying to tell you that you can't act that way. But for me... I don't want that in my life, so I'm going to split. And people kind of get like, <laughs> right? I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. I'm trying to preserve what's right for me, what I believe to be right for me. Um, that might change every day. But um, I try to do the next right thing. And what I've found is that if I focus on today and I try to do the next right thing today or right now, chances are tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and be in a pretty good spot. Mm -hmm. Um, I try not to worry about too much in the future because it's not here yet anyway. So if I'm taking care of today, I should be good. So that's where I try to keep the focus. Yeah, you guys taking notes, man? Like, I'm making mental notes right now. (laughs) What does the meme say? This MF was spitting. That's what all (laughs) the memes say. That's exactly what's going on here, man. And speaking of, you know trying to do the next right thing and getting put in exactly where we're supposed to be because I I think we're very similar. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe you meet people when you're supposed to meet them. At times, just often, we are in that chaos and we don't realize that we're supposed to actually nurture this relationship or talk to this person or those kinds of things. But uh, you're in a pretty cool position right now and have been for about a decade now. Yes, with uh, your um, your wife, and uh, that that wouldn't have happened had you not have you not done what you've done. Not in a million years. Let me tell you why. There's a couple reasons why that would never would have happened. Um, after I was divorced, um, I was newly divorced and had been in that relationship. Married thirteen together, total of fifteen. So I was newly divorced, and I thought, oh man, this is the first time I've been you know, a free man in 15 years. So I dated a few girls, uh, asked a couple girls out from work, went out to dinner and stuff. It felt really super awkward. Mm -hmm. I felt really uncomfortable and talking with my sponsor about it and whatnot. Um, We both decided the best thing for me was since I felt awkward, we need to figure out why. So let's not worry about that dating thing anymore. 
got kids to raise and I've got uh, recovery to work pretty new in the program. Um, by the way, I'll go back to him in a minute, but I want to talk about my sponsor. Um, <laughs> um, I'm pretty new in the program. And um, he says, you know, what they do recommend is don't make any big decisions. Don't enter any new relationships for a full year. Yep. Um, so not having any belief in my plan or my ability to drive the bus, I was following everything he had to say right from the get-go. He was, uh, you know, um, former Vietnam, he's a Vietnam veteran, 30 years sober, 20 years in my program. Um, I respected this dude. And like you said, people get put in our lives exactly when they're supposed to. My father, when I was going through the most difficult time in my life, I needed a father figure to lean on. And he showed up. And he was there. I checked every decision I made with him. And including, he said, let's not try and date for a year. Let's focus on your recovery. Focus on your kids. Take care of yourself. There'll be a relationship there for you when you need it. Mm-hmm. When the time's right. I went 11 and a half months. Not <laughs> dating. Not anything. My band at the time was called The Hunchies. We were playing a festival in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I was talking to him that day and I, I had meditated and said some prayers and thought, you know, I'm getting lonely. I could use somebody just to talk to. And I talked to my sponsor. He's like, keep your eyes open. The next day we drove to Cleveland. We we're supposed to play at five 30, pull in at five, we load our gear on the stage. I run to the bar to get a pitcher or a, a pitcher of water and standing there waiting for my stuff. And this girl walks up. And she asked me, she walks up and starts talking to me. And I was just like, whoa. And so I left, got my stuff, and I left. I won't go into our conversation, but it was pretty cool. The, the conversation was, I'll say it anyway, it's quickly. I'll do it quickly because I know we're, we're not on a time limit. But she asked me what the score of the ball game was on the TV. It was the Indians were playing Tampa. And the Indians were losing. I said, Indians are losing 7-5. She said, oh, that sucks. I go, no, that's good for me. And she turned around and said, what? Where the hell are you from? And I said, I'm from Detroit. She said, oh, there's nothing good from Detroit but my uncle. But you won't know who he is. I'm like, oh, yeah, why not? She said, oh, he coaches special teams for the Lions. And I said, oh, Chuck Prefer? And she like, how the hell do you know who my uncle is? <laughs> I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know well, that. Well, I'm a huge Lions fan, but... I used to work near the Silverdome when they practiced there. We'd take lunch and go watch practice. And at the, our lunchtime just happened to coincide with special teams practice. So I was very aware of who Coach Prefer was. There's and then no I such said, thing as coincidence. I'll yeah. say it again. There's no such thing as coincidence. So I walked away and played. And throughout the night, we kept. I ran into her and I met her there and I called her. She's in Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm here in Detroit. So I started talking to her without any expectation. I learned... Don't set any expectation because expectation is just resentment waiting to happen. I want to just ride the wave and see where it takes me. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, Gerald, we dated five years with her living in Cleveland with her son, me living here in Michigan with my daughters. They're both involved in sports and school activities. Kids were number one priority. We dated and saw each other when we could. One time we went six weeks without seeing each other. It was tough, really, really tough, but I had faith in it. I, I, I believed in it. I knew she was the one. And she'll tell you she was hesitant. She thought I was just a guy rolling through town playing and needed you know, a girl to hook up with when he came to Cleveland. But that wasn't the case. Um, I honestly wanted somebody to talk to mm-hmm. at that point. We became great friends over those con- All we had at the beginning, we were three and a half hours apart. All we had was conversation. We became great friends, and I believe that nothing happens by coincidence. Had she been here in Detroit, I probably would have hurried through the whole relationship process and moved her in and ruined it all, burned it to the ground and threw it in the ditch. Mm -hmm. But she was three and a half hours away, just far enough to not allow me to ruin anything, to take it slow, to go over things with my sponsor. And so five years later to the day that we met, we got married. And she moved to Michigan and lives here now. 
I've been married to her for 10 years. She's my absolute best friend. Right on. We are happy. Um, we're now empty nesters. I got twin daughters who are 28, and I have a stepson who just turned 22. And um, it seems like our relationship gets better every day. And it's not any doing of mine. I just, like I said, try to do the next best thing. She's, we learned separately. It's up to us to take care of ourselves if we're going to take care of the relationship. It's not up to her to make me happy. It's not up to me to make her happy. We take care of ourselves and we bring that together in the relationship. And um, sure, there's one that might be a little more on than others at times, but that's what the, that's what a relationship and a partnership's about. There's a bunch of rad one-liners about that. You know, you can't pour from an empty cup. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so many good things, and I think you've stated it perfectly. Uh, and again, you guys better be taking notes, man. I always say <laughs> there are nuggets of wisdom in every show, and, and instead of having to go back and watch the whole show, just make some bullet points because, uh, you know, uh, Pete's life is going to resonate. Somewhere in this story, it resonates with you. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If you're watching the drop-in, something resonates with you. Write it down, man. That could be the one little thing you need to start that progress of where you want to be. I often say it. Massive change, it never happens in a tidal wave. It's tiny, little, habitual things we shift in our thinking, in our mannerisms, in our morning routine. Those make the biggest lasting changes in our life. And with you, you know, from, from therapy to sticking with, everything he said and what is the other famous quote in 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 uh recovery you know well my best thinking got me here yeah exactly. i'm gonna rely on somebody else to guide this ship for a while till i can get my head together mm -hmm. and you just i mean you really did illustrate it perfectly thank being you. able to surrender to that thank you and no i want more for my daughters i want more for myself let's let's see how we can get there um you know, in, in our in our communications back and forth, you had mentioned even wanting to do more with, with your story and, and the, the audience you're reaching, um, podcast, book. Like, do you have any ideas of what, what you want to do moving forward? Podcast, book. <laughs> I don't really have a set thing. I've always wanted to write a book. Um, so that's, that's in the works. Um, during COVID, I did a little podcast type thing on Facebook Live that was... It was awesome. It was amazing. I had so much fun doing, had a great response. Um, I have often wanted to do something with that, incorporating music into it and talking. Um, you know, the recovery thing and the self-help uh, angle is always, I mean, there can't, in my opinion, there can't be enough of that. Um, if we get enough out there, my story, your story, whoever's story is going to resonate with somebody. Mm -hmm. And a little bit, little increment at a time, like you said, is, is going to, has the possibility of changing the world. Um, in the, when it all comes right down to it, people deserve to be happy. I guarantee 99.9% .9 of the people walking this earth and this community around us today are dealing with childhood trauma, dealing with some sort of issues, and they're trying to keep it on. They're putting their mask on and they're trying to keep, keep afloat in a life while they're struggling. The thing is, is they don't have to. A lot of people aren't aware of it. Right. They're just simply not aware that there's a different way. Well, and, and I, I, I was a, a great example. You know, there's nobody going through what I'm going through. Like, you feel isolated. You're like, you know, mm -hmm. there's nobody that can relate to what I'm going through. I have found so many people that relate to what I'm going through, and they're open to have a conversation about it. And, and when you find those people... It, there's something magic that mm -hmm. happens, you know, if it was, um, you know, walking in that first day to the group and realizing, you know, yeah, like I, I'm not really that unique. There's others that, that, you know, they've been through it. They can, we can talk about it and, and be open and honest with it. And they don't go, holy shit. Right. Like you're crazy. I don't want to go. You stay over there. They'll say, oh, no way. Really? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and that, 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 um, that, that communication, that union, that, that uh, fellowship, if you will, is such a special place. Definitely. It definitely is, you know. And for so long, the whole self-help and the recovery and the therapy was such taboo to yeah. talk about. And everyone kept it hid and swept it on the rug and the pretend everything's fine when everything's just a mess. Um, 
I'm glad now, like you said, people are embracing it. And um, for instance, this is a perfect example. You're doing a show about recovery. You're doing a series of shows about recovery. And what you found is crawling from all different directions. Or people are clamoring to get on your show because I'm um, just like I was because I'm thankful that people were willing to share their experience and their strength and their hope when I walked in here because that's what got me to come back. Mm -hmm. If those people weren't sitting on each side of me sharing that experience and that hope despite the clouds and despite the chaos and the darkness and the in you know not knowing what's going to happen next in your life, there's that hope. They throw that life ring out there to you. And if I can do that, I'm willing to stand on a corner and talk about this stuff. If it helps one person, um, you know, whatever it takes, because by me and I try to, I try to reach out and help a lot of people and sponsor people today. And, um, I always say that like, that was, Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. You're a lifesaver. But what people don't understand is by, I've got to give it away to keep it right. If I don't give it away, then it goes away. If I'm not working it, it goes away. And by every time I share a story or a, or a slogan, it's not stuff I've generated or miraculously manufactured in my brain. It's been recycled and I've been blessed to be gifted yeah. with that wisdom. I didn't create it. I can't take credit for all. I mean, I could take credit for remembering it, but the reason I remember it is because it's been said to me over and over and over and over. So it becomes a new habit instead of that dark chaotic habit of negative self-talk those positive reinforcements keep happening over and over and over and over it pushes the negative aside yep and there's so one of the raddest things i've seen in, in any recovery program if it's codependent alcohol narcotics whatever is there suggestions mm -hmm. nobody's telling you what to do they're offering you suggestions of what worked for them, what worked for Pete, what worked for me. You can take with it what you want. I'm not saying you have to do this, but these things worked for us, might work for you. Mm -hmm. Give it a shot if you want a better life. And that's what I, uh, my new book coming out, I wrote it that way. And it's not about recovery. It's a personal development book, but it are suggestions that work for me and some mm -hmm. pretty cool people I know. Yeah. Nobody likes being told what to do. And, uh, and so, you know, but when you get to the end of your rope, you're willing to take advice from just about anybody. Like yeah. I want to live, tell me what to do. Just mm -hmm. tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. And, um, and you're a great living example of, of following that path and becoming the best version of yourself you possibly can. Thank you. And I'm sure each day like me, you're still finding ways to improve on that little bit, you know, oh, yeah. like, like figuring out. What what you can do each day, right. and uh, I can't I cannot thank you enough for coming thank on you. the show today, sharing with our drop in audience. Um, uh, it's amazing. It's thank amazing, you. incredible that we're both alive. We're here to talk about it. Amen. That we're doing pretty okay in the lives we have. Uh, did we? I could say we could probably talk for hours and hours for real, Pete. Oh yeah. But um, is there anything you'd like to close with? Anything you'd like to remind the people? Like I said, we're gonna um. We're going to put links to high totals. To uh, There'll be links under here to AANA. I do it at every show, Refuge Recovery, different things like that. You can reach out to us both personally. I'm sure Definitely. Pete wouldn't mind to point you in the right direction or give you a little bit of a hand. But is there anything that we, uh, we haven't touched on or any nugget of wisdom that you haven't already expounded on? <laughs> it's been awesome. Well, I wanted to say is that you can probably relate to this too is while I have came, I've traveled leaps and bounds in, in, and learned and absorbed so much recovery and positivity, and I'm thankful for the tools I'm, I have today, um, but by no means have I graduated. By no means am I cured. By no means do I not have adversity in my life, and everything isn't lollipops and rainbows and unicorns for me. I still um, encounter the same hardships and the same adversities in life at work, in my family, you know, all that stuff still goes on for me. But thankfully, unlike before, I have the tools to deal with it now. I can reach out to people. I can read. I can meditate. I can. I have a full toolbox. Instead of having to tackle it with a hammer, um, I have a full toolbox now. And if I don't have the tool, I can pick up the phone and get it from somebody. Yeah. And, and I know where to turn when those adversities hit me today. Um, 
I didn't do that before. I didn't have that. I would, and I'm thankful for that. So, um, you know, there is no graduation date. You don't attend this and it's a work in progress. The way I look at it is I fine tuned my dysfunction for almost 40 years. So if I think I'm going to fix it in 10, um, I'm sadly mistaken. Right. But I wanted to thank you for having me on here. Like you said, I could talk about this for hours. I think you and I could probably sit here the rest of the night. They'd be turning off the lights on us. But um, I want to thank you very, very much. And like, like Gerald said, if, if I can help anybody, I hope I said something today that was helpful. And um, feel free to reach out. Find me on Facebook, Instagram. Um, you can find me just about anywhere. You can look me up on Google and find me. I'm easily found. I'm not hiding anywhere. I'm always willing to take a call always willing to offer my story um so and again i can't thank you enough cool man thank you and thank you guys you're the reason we do it you. you know we could sit here and have the camera off and shoot the shit but uh, the message is important and it's important for you there's a reason i always say i don't believe in coincidence you didn't show up here to watch this show by coincidence. There was something within this hour or so that you needed to hear today. So I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to like and share, send it to your friends, all that kind of stuff. Anybody you think it will impact their life, send it. Get it out there. Let's make positivity go viral. And once again, I want to thank you, Pete. I want to thank you guys. This is Pete. I'm Gerald. And this is The Drop-In. Oh, <laughs> my